Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, The Promised Land. And the author is Brian A. Curtis, and Brian joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Brian. Hello, Steve. Great to have you with us all the way from Australia. This book, Comprehensive, Part 1, it's 500 pages, and you're really getting us to help help us understand the Bible in a little different way. You say it tries to put the Bible in historical order, and in order to make it easier to read, separates the narrative from God's laws. Now, we'll have to talk about what you mean about that, that separation part. Uh, also, you say that it is, however, part one, Abraham to Joshua, of what is hoped will be a series of books covering the whole of the Bible. So, Quite an undertaking, uh, but you seem to be up for it, and you seem to have the background for it. So tell us about your background, Brian, and how this book came about. Uh, well, my background is I became a Christian when I was about 25 years of age, um, and then very quickly felt God's call to the ordained ministry. So I'm actually an Anglican clergyman um, in the um, in the the church in Tasmania, although uh, a couple of years ago I recently retired. Um, but um, so, so that's a that's a little bit about my background. Um, the reason this book came about, though, was because um, over the years in ministry, I was told by many people that I'd encourage them to read the Bible. And they started by, um, that what they wanted to do was to read the Bible from the beginning to the end, and um, uh, which, which, uh, which I think is very commendable and I encourage them to do it. Uh, but um, very shortly people seemed to come back one by one and say, well, we got stuck part of the way through the book of Exodus um, and we just stopped. It's just too difficult to read. So, uh, so because of that, I felt... I felt as though I needed to do something to help people to, you know, normal everyday people to try and be able to read something that would involve the whole text of the Bible, um, but with extra bits added in, um, like which I've done in italics to help them understand the culture and uh, all the things they needed to know just to get through the basics of the Bible. So this this format to separate the narrative from God's laws. Help us better understand that. Yeah, well, I, I, think, I, I think the problem for many people was that when they, when they tried to read the Old Testament, or the Bible, um, the stumbling blocks that people found were that they'd, they'd, they'd start to read a story which, which they could reasonably well understand even though there was sort of a cultural difference. But every now and again, the story would be interrupted by genealogy or God's laws or whatever, 
Um, and, and there were things that didn't seem very relevant to, to people in the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, some of God's laws didn't really make a lot of sense um, from, from a 20th or 21st century under, sort of understanding. So um, what I felt I needed to do was I needed to put all those things into context um, so people could then read back um, and say, oh, yes, I understand this now. Um, so, so that's why there was a clear separation between the narrative and God's laws. I wanted to write, I wanted to sort of uh, re-edit the Bible, if you like, so that people could easily follow it, um, as if it was, as if it was a, ed, as if the Bible was edited in the 21st century, as, as in, at the back of my mind, I was thinking, okay, here, here, I've got a copy of the Bible. How would it be? How would it have been written or presented if it would have been written in the 21st century? And that's what I've tried to do. Mm. Um, um, mm-hmm. And and obviously, I've only got so far up to Joshua, but um, um, and the and the challenge for the rest of it is yet to come. That may be a bit controversial, re-editing the Bible. Yes, uh, and I, and I expect I expect there will be a bit of criticism for that because. Um, what what has been available to people in the past is you can get books which which describe what the Bible is about book by book. Um, you've been able to get different translations uh, which suit diff- different sort of people. I mean, some people still like the old King James Version, other people like a much more modern version. Um, you've been able to get commentaries on particular books of the Bible but I've not been aware of anyone who in the past has decided to sort of get the Bible out, almost sort of get a pair of scissors and sticky tape out and cut and rearrange it um, so that it it becomes more readable to the 21st century reader. Uh, I I think that's probably the most controversial part of what I've done. And, And I expect that some people won't be happy with that because they'll think um, that I've sort of tampered with, with something that is sacred and, and shouldn't be touched in that way. And maybe that's why attempts like this perhaps have never been done in the past. Section A of Part 1, the narrative, and yeah. it doesn't follow the traditional biblical book format. It doesn't, no. You know, the, tell us why, why, why how you no. treated that. Um, well, um, from, a, from my understanding of Hebrew culture um, in term, terms of religion, um, they would associate Abraham as the beginning of, um, as, as the person who sort of started this, um, this belief in God and continued it on. So, so, what, so one of the things I was trying to instill in this book um, is all the Hebrew culture um, that sometimes um, got removed in more modern translations. So I was sort of trying to bring bring the Bible back to its Hebrew roots. Um, the other thing is that the first ele- 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis, um, which is the stories from Abraham up, including Noah, up to the period just before Abraham, seem to me to be more 
like stories that were told by the by the by the chosen people as they were wandering in the wilderness. So what I've tried to do is to is to is to rearrange the Bible in historical order, but by putting the early stories in into the context of the um, of 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 the, the story of the Hebrew people, which began with Abraham. So um, so no no uh, no you you in, as far as the Promised Land is concerned, you won't find the the stories in the same order that you will in a traditional Bible. But that's that. But that's quite deliberate in terms of trying to, mm-hmm. um, in trying to get a timeline right, historical timeline from Abraham to Joshua, and 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 in order to do that, because what I've done is sometimes sometimes things are repeated more than once in the pages of the Old Testament, like the ten giving of the Ten Commandments was um, was recorded in Exodus. And it was also recorded in Deuteronomy. So what I've done is I've actually merged the two stories together, and I've done that a few times with different stories, so that um, so I'm not re- so the idea is the book doesn't retell the story um, like like it does in the traditional Hebrew Bible. So yes, um, I have rearranged it, um, but it, but it's in order to get it into some sort of historical context. As well as emphasising the um, um, the Hebrew culture that that often gets sort of miss, missed in modern Bibles. Then we have section B, Yahweh's laws, and you say this is presented in a new and meaningful way. Help us understand that. Okay, the um, as as you read as you read the traditional Bible, the um, as as the Israelites are moving out of Egypt and going to the Promised Land, um, they are given a series of laws, not necessarily in logical order, but they may be um, in terms of the needs of the people as as and when it happens. Um, and so, what I've tried to do is because I wanted the narrative to you know the the, the story to to be intact without the, the stumbling blocks in between. So what I what, so what I've done is to is to base God's laws around the Ten Commandments, and and sort of try to show that the, the Ten Commandments weren't strict literal laws to be kept, but there were principles behind each. And and so what I've done is taken taken God's laws, all of God's laws. And and put them under the headings of the Ten Commandments. So, um, so it, so the commandment therefore, you shall not kill, which we find in the uh, traditional Bible, um, will be um, is is under a chapter on its own, and it's entitled the Sanctity of Life. So it starts off with a little explanation of what uh, what the law was about. It states the law, and then listed under under that are all the laws to do with the sanctity of life, um, because because people over the years have said, um, you know, I keep the Ten Commandments, you know, I've never broken God's laws, um, you know, I I've never killed anyone, but the prince, principle behind the commandment about about maintaining the sanctity of life 
is not just about taking someone's life away. It's, a, it's about um, helping people who are suffering and uh, helping people who are in need. So the, so the whole principle behind that commandment, uh, in my book, I think, comes quite clear that it's more than just not killing someone. It's actually sort of helping and caring and uh, doing what you can for those who are less fortunate. The theme overall, closer relationship with our Creator, is that what you're trying to help us see? Well, well yes, because, um, you know, uh, there, are Christ, there are Christians in the church who, will, will, who, who, who only read the New Testament and have very little understanding of the Old Testament. And I'm sure in the, uh, the synagogues of the world there are, there are Jews who sort of really struggle with, um, with, with, uh, with their Bible, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. So what I'm trying to do is to say, okay, uh, from, from Christian point of view, um, our New Testament is based on the Old Testament. Um, in actual fact, I've, uh, the last two daily readings I've had um, uh, personally um, were from the New Testament and they referred to events in the Old Testament. So, so, so basically what I'm trying to do is to give a resource to help people understand, uh, for Christians, help understand the Old Testament so that they can understand better the New Testament. And uh, if they can do that, then, then I hope that would help them um, to understand God and to, uh, to help them in their walk with God. Uh, having said that, this is not a particularly Christian book. I've simply taken perhaps the first third of the Old Testament and, um, and rearranged it and translated it and, and added sort of th things to it, um, which would be just as relevant to the modern Jew as it is to the modern Christian. So there's nothing particularly Christian about this. Um, I've simply taken the Old Testament and tried to, uh, to help people from a faith point of view, whether they are Jews or Christians. Would you describe your book as life-changing? Well, it could be. Um, but put it this way, um, uh, I, I gave a few books to people a couple of weeks ago in our local church. Um, and it's amazing, on, uh, on Sunday, um, so, so the, the Sunday afterwards, um, uh, people were coming up and talking to me and they were saying that um, were, were some were saying they didn't know certain things and others were saying they were fam um, I was telling familiar stories but I, but I was helping them because there were certain things that they didn't understand before so um, I mean to me to me that that sort of uh, means that already I am getting a response from the book and that the six plus years that it's taken me to, to write this thing has been worthwhile. Um, so definitely life-changing, um, but um, that how life-changing will depend upon the, the, the person who's reading it. And uh, a translation of the original Hebrew. Yes. That comes about with, uh, obviously, uh, a lot of discipline on your part. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, plus, plus the fact, I mean, I mean, obviously I've been taught Hebrew in the past um, and I'm able to use those skills with God's help. Uh, 
But I mean, but I mean, this this book wouldn't have been possible without all the all the people who have um, translated and commented and and uh, preached um, about the scriptures in the past. Um, I mean, I mean, the, I mean, the number of books that I've referred to um, to to help me um, is amazing. Um, but but obviously, when you read a modern commentary to help you understand, so so, so that I can come up with the result that I have, I mean, their reading um, and the, has been influenced by the people before them, and then the people mm-hmm. before them. It's like sort of chain reaction. So so in uh, reality, is this 21st century version of Abraham to Joshua would not have been possible without the person who taught me Hebrew. And all the other people who've gone on in the past, you know, back back for centuries. Mm-hmm. Very well put, Brian. Brian A. Curtis. He is the author of The Promised Land. Tell us, Brian, how to get your book. Uh, well, it's available through um, a couple of websites: uh, exlibri.com.au, through Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble or you can order it through your local bookseller. Thank you so much, Brian, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. 
The title of the book is Latent Heat, A Year's Worth, and our author is David Fredette. Thank you, David, for joining me this morning. Thank you, Jay. This is uh, 67 pages of reflection that you put together over a year's period, and the type of re- reflection that it is, is it's poetry. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a year's worth of poetry, uh, poems written weekly for a year. Your background is not as an author and poet. You have uh, another background. Tell us about that. I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm a chief engineer on the uh, Port Jefferson Bridgeport Ferry, and uh, I've been. I also work in heating, ventilation, air conditioning. Um, I graduated from SUNY Maritime College uh, as an engineer, and I sailed for a number of years, uh, circled the world. The globe, and uh, uh, and also I during that time I I had a lot of reflection, and uh, I finally got the time to put it all together. And have you always journaled, or kept notes, or kept poetry as part of your activities? Uh, you know what? This is the first fifty-six poems I ever wrote in my life, um, but it, it was just a. Uh, reflection over the years of of sailing, and, uh, and I ran into some difficulty of, uh, during that time. I became bipolar, and I went through a whole process with that. So that this book is a reflection also of of the recovery from bipolar disorder. Excellent. And what motivated you to put this in book form? Uh, well, I uh, attended a poetry group called Wednesdays at Curly's at Curly's Diner in Stanford, Connecticut. I had lived there for several years, and we would get together every week and critique the poems. So it was convenient because I got the poems all critiqued every week, and uh, they're all ready to go. Um, and it wasn't long after writing it, after a year, that it, it went right into publication. I've noticed you have several different themes or different titles on your poetry that you've written. You've got things like Expo, Quest, Secular, Receptacle. A lot of them are single-word introductions to your poetry. Do you have a couple that are your favorite that you might want to share with us? Uh, Yes, I have a a few of them. One of them is Shipwreck, and it goes, The crew awoke on a massive slab of driftwood. It began to pour. We fail to see dawn, yet there are no gray moments to reflect on. The flash of a favorable past persists when we buy stock in character at every unfortunate miss. Brighter days may prevail again, and frequent praise for the individuals, the strong beings who got us there, should be paramount to oneself. Very good. Very good. And... The process of writing these particular thoughts and putting them into book form, uh, you say it took about a year's time. On each poem, how long do you think it takes? Well, I'd spend a couple hours, like two to four hours writing it. The hardest part was actually uh, the writer's block that was involved. But it just came down to, I just started writing anything, you know. And before I know it, I had some sort of form that was that was interesting and, and I was able to share it with the group. A great activity in self-discovery as well, I'm thinking, in some of your poetry. Yes. Which of those would reflect that? Activity in myself, um, well, there's several poems 
a religious aspect to that I reflect on. It's called Easter. Oh, I'd love to hear that. And it, it's, it's about transparency in, in, in uh, religion. And it goes, I am silent as I look past the deer. Spring winds howl with winter's disdain for heat. A Christian wipes the chow hall windows clear. Behind the dough, our Lord is raised from dead. Divine visions cast a sense of relief. For now, I can dream about pleasant times. But at the limits, when we lack belief. Belief in something that's beyond these lines. Aliens, Buddha, Reverend Moon, J. Christ. We struggle to learn most all they have taught all of which may be candidates for life. Maybe it's just another train of thought. But I cannot consume the venison. It is six inches tall and made of plastic, right next to a canvas that Christ is on. Transparency, just fine and fantastic. Fabulous. And how would you introduce this book to someone who is not familiar with your writing? The poems are uh, they're a whimsical collection written uh, that improve over the year's time. Over the year, the poems actually improve, and uh, as well as the author's mental well-being, uh, my mental health with, uh, also improved with, along with the progression of the, of the year. Are your poems in chronological order from when they're written? Yes. They're, they're signed and they're dated each each week. That would also add credence to the journey you were on and give us some unique insight into your personal growth. Yes, yes. So you can actually gauge uh, where things start to improve. And the critics say that about like eight months in, it really starts to improve dramatically. Thank you for sharing that. Is this book similar to others in the marketplace? It already sounds as though there is some discovery in here that may not be found in other books and other writings. Not many people, mental illness is the uh, issue, uh, issue today, big time, with all the, uh, you know, with all the assailants and stuff that had taken place over the years. And, uh, you know, dealing with it and trying to deal with the stigma of mental illness is a whole wide open area to be discussed. This should be a good, a good place to start then on discussing those challenges that many are faced with. Yes, it's, and it's not only just the mental illness, it's also bereavement, uh, financial difficulty. It's all about recovery. That's the theme. Fabulous. And and was there anything else that was challenging about putting this together, this book? Most of it is just uh, writer's block is, is the biggest thing, and, and dealing with that, as I said, was just uh, start writing. Forget, don't, don't even try to critique it as you write. Just write. You know, write something. Well, congratulations on your journey so far. This sounds like a good read and one that a lot of people will enjoy taking up and participating in your journey. How do we get copies of it? Uh, you can go to Amazon.com or you can go to a yearsworth.com. A yearsworth.com. Is that your personal website? Yes. And do you have anything else in the works that's planned for the future? Uh, yes, I have a, a story I want to write. Uh, it's still to be uh, determined when I'm going to write that. But. Well, thank you for sharing this story on the book Latent Heat, A Year's Worth by David Fredette. Thank you, David, for joining me today. All right, thank you, Jay. Best of luck in the future. And for Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker.
Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The title of the book is He Dared, the story of Akuku Uda Apabio, the great colonial African leader. Our author is Afunbuk C. Apabio. And joining us from Nigeria, Afunbuk. Welcome, Afunbuk. Hey, I'm happy that I'm on with you. I'm really excited. This 354-page book explores the history of a great African leader and some of your family heritage as well. Tell me what inspired you to put this together. Um, I was actually intrigued at the first instance by my husband. You know, the subject of this book is actually his grandfather, so... My husband bears an extremely proud man around his heritage. And so I decided to investigate and know more. So that's actually, you know, what um, started this book. But as I wrote, I found out that it was such a valuable piece of information that everybody should get to know. So that's how I started writing this. And you are located in Nigeria. Does this story take place in Nigeria? Yes, it takes place in Nigeria, in um, the south-south region of Nigeria, a state called Akwaibum State. That's where it, it takes place. The subject of the book, Okuku Afabio, was also a gentleman in the culture that had many wives and concubines. Explain to our listeners the historical context of that cultural phenomenon. Well, you see, like, even in most of Africa today, the wealth of a man at that time was measured in how many wives he has because he, he has to have a lot of wives and children to help him in the farm work. Um, bear in mind that we didn't have any kind of mechanized farming, so a lot of the farm work was done by hand and very crude, um, using very crude tools. So you needed a lot of people to help you in the farm work. And so that's why a rich man has to have many wives to help him in, in, in all of that. So that, that's why Okuku had 29 wives. How many again? 29. 29, 29 wives. 29 wives. <laughs> so he was a very rich and wealthy man for his time. Yes, he was. He was. And successful. What was the outstanding accomplishment that he made in his life? 
Well, I think the outstanding accomplishment Ukuku made in his life was um, he didn't have, let me put it in this way, he was not educated in the Western um, w uh, way of education at all, but he was someone who contributed so much and encouraged um, his children and young people around him to go to school. Because when the white man came and brought religion and trade and education, he said, look, you have to get to know what this is all about. So he encouraged people to go to school. And because of that commitment to um, the young people getting that knowledge, the whole of that area became so, so well educated. So you have a lot of professionals today, doctors, architects, medical doctors, all coming from that area because of his zeal to get them to have education. A strong foundation of leadership that uh, accomplished that. Yeah. A fun book. Tell me who you think this book is going to appeal to. Is this more historical in nature or biographical? This book, I I feel, is going to appeal to uh, you know so many people. First of all, he's very rich in the anthropology of our people, so he has a very good historical content. But it's also a book that you know shows you. The, uh, should I say inspires you because you find this man being able to dream and he had a vision and he was just there to dream and you see that because of his commitment to that vision he's able to accomplish so much and his legacy now endures. As a matter of fact one of his um, grandsons was recently last, last year given a United States Congressional Award so it just shows you how, from very um, obscure beginnings, this man is able to achieve so much, and now is even at the international platform. So it appeals to um, us all that we can achieve where we dream. And did he eventually retire from his leadership role? Yes, he did. Yeah, eventually retired. Yeah. And how old was he when he retired? Um, well, let me put it this way. In terms of active leadership, he retired, but he was a crown ruler. So he, he was, as long as he lived, he continued to be that crown leader, you know, crown uh, ruler. You know, like you have something like the monarchy in maybe Britain. So you can't really take that away from the person as long as the person is alive. But actively in, involved in um, leadership, day-to-day -day running of the affairs of the community. He had to, you know, ease up on that. But until he died, he remained the ruler of the people. And so I would say he lived up to about 96, 97. We are not sure of the date, but, you know, extrapolating, it should be about that. Incredible history. His sons, tell us about them. Oh, my God. His sons are just so awesome. He had 17 sons in all, and a lot of them, are, you know, they grew up to become great professionals, medical doctors, architects, engineers, and they have achieved so much, not just in Nigeria, but in the international platform. For instance, um, we have Dr. Apabio. He worked in Jamaica for a while, one of his um, younger sons. 
he achieved so much in Jamaica, helped to set up some clinics and hospitals over there. And right now we have a couple of his grandsons living and working in the United States and some of his other granddaughters too. At least I know two of his grandsons are pharmacists. Uh, you know, one works in Walgreens. So, you know, so he's been able to achieve so much and his sons have gone even beyond what he would have even expected. So it's a real good legacy. It's a remarkable legacy. And the process of writing this book, how long did it take you to research it and put it together? Oh, it took me quite a while, you know, like three years, because most of um, what I I got was through oral interviews. You know, the written and documented aspect of it was not readily available because then people didn't have this culture of documenting things. This is one of the reasons why this book is so important because it gives a documented uh, version of our culture. It, it embodies the way of life of the people. So, I mean, it took me that while, but it, it, it gave me a very rich content. So I was able to do it in a couple of years. This book would be inspirational. Are there two or three words that would describe it? Yeah, I would say um, this book is about um, vision. It's about believing in oneself and having a dream. How would you introduce this book to someone that doesn't know of his history? I would say that this book is about um, a man who dared to believe in things that other people did not even think about. You know, he, he, he moved past frontiers seen at the time and embraced new horizons that have left a truly compelling story. Udok he was a man of many parts, but the dim circumstances of his early childhood did not deter his ambition to turn around his fortune. In this book, you get to discover Udok a warrior and a symbol of the indomitable spirit of the people of the area. He was indeed a charismatic leader and a successful businessman. Yet, he found time to carry out his duties as the patriarch of one of the largest and most influential family stock in South-South Nigeria today. And more importantly, I would say that this story chronicles Udo Fabio as a bridge between the British and the indigenous people. And Udo Fabio was a man who acted on intriguing insights and said the affairs of his people and was able to strike a delicate balance between age-long traditions and westernization as brought by the British. So he did is his story. And when did he live, specifically? He lived in the 19th century. He died in the 20th century. So just recently he passed away? Yes. Fascinating story. Are there any specific scenes in this book, in your research of his life, that stand out to you, other than the general things? Is there one specific or two specific incidences that stand out? Oh, there are a couple of incidences that stand out, but I would say, first of all, the the richness of the culture of the people. 
For instance, you find when he was to be crowned um, the ruler of the people of that community, you see how rich, uh, you know, the story is told of people gathering, the costumes, the war, the feasts that went on for weeks just to culminate in that event, and then how the British sent representation to attend that event. And another thing that strikes me is um, when the white missionary reverend groups first set foot in that community, this is a man who speaks English, and this is a man, on the other hand, who does not understand a word of English. But they were able to strike a friendship right from the first day, maybe from body language, and then the interpreter is in between them, going back and forth. And so you see that bond right from that that bond right from the first time. It comes alive, and you could see that these two men were able to trust themselves, and that's why, um, in so many aspects, the the British they used Okukudo um, Fabio. They made him a judge. They made him a chief by government warrant. So you see all these things playing out in the book and how instrumental Okukudok Pabio was in ensuring that the British were successful in, in, in what they were doing in Nigeria at that time. And how did he perform as a judge? What is his legacy? Oh, my God. He did extremely well. First of all, the, he was appointed a judge of the native court. And then he was subsequently promoted by the British administrator to become the president of the Court of Appeal, you know, overseeing the native court. And that, that was because, according to the story that was documented by the British, this was one man who would not take any bribe. This is one man who did not allow friendships or other bonds, you know, he had with the people to color what his judgment was going to be. So they now decided that they will assign to him more serious cases of murder and, you know, serious matters of theft to him. He was now handling that and administering what happened in the lower court. So he did very well. And and, and as um, a mark of recognition, we have a bust of Okukudo Fabio, a sculpted bust of him, now sitting at the museum in, in Calabar, one of the principal regions in Nigeria. And he wasn't perfect, but he did do some remarkable things in his life and accomplished a great deal. Yes. Was there anything challenging about putting this book together? Well, a lot was challenging about it because oral accounts, I just didn't want to um, take one person's word for it. I mean, I don't want to cast any doubt on people's integrity but what i did was when well, once i get the account of a particular incident from you know a i had to run it through several other people to just be sure that that account is accurate so that was the principal challenge i had because most of the uh, materials came from people who knew him and i had to corroborate that a lot so it took a lot of time it took a lot of efforts and then trying to weed out people who actually knew what they were talking about. That, that was really challenging. A fun book. Tell me, why is this book such a compelling read? Uh, this book is um, particularly very exciting and, of course, a compelling read because it has history, culture, wit, and motivation 
all rolled into one compelling read. Let me explain. This is the story of the way of life of the people. But inside of it, you can see a lot of laughter, a lot of um, intrigues and all of that. So you are compelled to get to know the end of what this person is about, the other characters in the book. And then it's motivation because this man is someone, when you sit down, you listen to him, you look at the way he does things, he motivates you to go for the best. He was one man who believed so much in the dream and the vision and that with time, if you work hard and you were committed, you were going to actualize it. And, and that's why we see his family flourishing. Like I said, his sons and daughters and his grandchildren, generations after him, have been very great achievers in um, Nigeria today. His grandson is one of the governors in Akwaibum State, and he has also been a recipient, like I mentioned earlier, of a United States Congressional Award. That was last year. And then you have a couple of his um, um, children, grandchildren, living in the United States now and doing so well and affecting their community positively. So this is a story one should read, and um, it's very compelling indeed. Well, fun book. Thank you for joining us. This is uh, actually a book that's more than a historical document. It is a book of inspiration as well. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Title of the book again is He Dared The Story of Okuku Uda Apabio, the Great Colonial African Ruler. The author, A Fun Book, Apabio. A Fun Book, where do we get copies of your book? Um, this book is already on from, you can get it through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or you could contact the publishers directly, which is Exlibris Publishing. And is this your first novel, first book, first publication? This is my first um, biography, but I have written other books, fiction works. So this is not my first uh, book, let's say. Well, we hope to hear from you again in the future. Again, the book is titled He Dared. Afunbuk A Pabuyo is our author, and thank you so much for joining us today. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.